Welcome back to the program, author Nancy Costaldo. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, thank you for joining us. As we are thinking about where we are this year, you and I were discussing environmental justice. And you have a lot of work, a lot of books that you've written that have allowed you to really take a deep dive into this issue. What are some of those books that address this issue? Well, I I touch on it in many books. This year, um, I spoke a lot about it in my book called When the World Runs Dry, and it's about the water crisis around the world. Previously, I had also um, delved into the topic with food security. So water security, um, food security, all of those desperately needed things that, that we need in our lives do impact a lot of different communities. And we're seeing it with water every day. This book brought you to many different corners of the world. What were some of the things that you learned? Um, for this book, I had some some differences, as well as diving into how water is being used uh, creatively to recharge aquifers in Tucson, Arizona, which was an absolute pleasure and finding out all of the great ways that they're utilizing their water resources, their very minimal water resources. I also went to Flint, Michigan. Not as much, not as not as enjoyable, I will admit. Uh, very, very difficult to hear the stories of people who are really suffering through the water crisis. And there was definitely um, a lot of people there that had been impacted. But also, I went to, to Colorado, where there was also a community impacted through fracking. And that was a very prime example of environmental injustice. Both of those cases were, and that's always difficult to, to listen to and to experience. In, uh, in Colorado, for example, there was a, a fracking site that was going to be uh, installed, uh, dug uh, nearby a, an affluent uh, elementary school. And the parents of that elementary school all stood up and and fought this and were able to have that site that would have impacted their children in that elementary school on many different levels move. And where did they move? They moved right, right in view of the playground of a elementary school that um, was in a, a more challenging neighborhood that had a population that had a lot of folks that English wasn't their first language. Um, so they weren't able to understand all the meetings and have all of the um, the ability to, to fight it. And of course, they, they ended up with this fracking site right outside their playground uh, for this elementary school. And it's a prime example of how these things, you know, the old not in my backyard premise is sometimes spills over to, to folks who can't always fight for themselves and, and move these things to other locations. And in the case in Flint, Michigan, and also in Newark, New Jersey, with the lead water, those were also yes. in, in low-income communities that were primarily... Exactly. And in Flint, Michigan, that was a situation where the entire city was impacted by, by this crisis. And it was in, unfortunate for everyone that lived in this in the city. However the neighborhood ward that was most affected was the area that um, was 
uh, economically challenged community that was separated from the rest of the city by a highway. Mm-hmm. And highways often cut off communities and very often they're lower income or black and brown communities. And they often are the, the ones that experience this environmental these environmental problems at a greater rate. Mm. And that highway is an example of urban development from the 60s. That yes, just exactly. Yeah, so you have people who really emphasized class differences. Exactly. And a lot of people when I was doing the book had said to me, why didn't they just move? They had a problem. Why didn't they just move? Well, think about that. That, that was, how could people just move when they lose all the equity in their homes? they basically can't resell their home if they have no water and the water uh, is poisoned. So the water has destroyed all their inner pipes, all of their inner, their appliances in their home. And then folks are saying, why don't you just move? Um, With what money are they going to move to another location? Uh, And, and the process of course went over for so many days, months, weeks, it just, you know, it just went on and on and on. So these folks had to take showers in nearby gyms and because they were using just bottled water. Now in the more affluent areas of a city that is impacted like this, they have the means they could possibly move or they could possibly um, have water delivered to their homes. They can, they have the means to do these things. So uh, it's it's difficult to watch these situations develop across the country and across the world in many of these spots. And you being from part of the capital region, how do you see these issues being reflected in this community, Troy, beyond? Well, one of the, of the areas that I also covered was Husik. And they, of course, were suffering from a different different type of water crisis that was the pollution of PFAS and those chemicals were were dumped illegally uh, many years ago uh, and impacted that area. Now that community was without a pediatrician to help these kids that were in this in the small rural community. Does that so, also mean that it took a while to actually diagnose what these issues were? It actually took one individual who who delved into this and found that there was a problem to begin with. It was one community member. And then it took a long time for the government recognizing that the problem existed. It it became a super fun site. But with this type of, with PFAS uh, poisoning, there has to be ongoing health data um, measurements. There has to be testing to make sure it's not something that just goes away or you, you don't just take a pill and it goes away. Um, it's the same thing with lead poisoning. These things, lead poisoning stays in your system. The PFAS does go away eventually, but you you can't have any more poisoning in the meantime. So you need ongoing health. You need the ongoing care. And, you know, some of these communities just don't have that. We've been focusing on your book, When the World Runs Dry, Earth, Water, and Crisis. But do you want to also mention some of the many other books that also look at environmental justice? So in uh, in a new book that just came out in November uh, called Buildings That Breathe, I talk about echo gentrification. And that's a situation where an area in a, in a city perhaps is a lower income area 
is leveled to put in a, a green building or a park. And we've seen that over the over the years in many, many locations and how that's trying to be how that's being countered by some green development and how uh, we're trying to move ahead to avoid dislocating people from their homes, uh, but rather creating green areas for those folks to enjoy. Parks, of course, don't just belong in um, highbrow neighborhoods, so to speak. Um, they belong to everybody. And it, it talks about green spaces uh, throughout uh, urban areas. And we will have you back in the spring to talk about a lot of your work that looks at farms, seeds, and gardens. So when we hear about water insecurity happening in places, how, how do listeners take that in? What can we do? And uh, what would you like them to take away from it? I would love our listeners to just be aware of the world around them and notice that when projects are going into certain areas and what's happening to their community, but also what's happening to their neighbors and neighboring communities to be aware of, of all of our neighbors in all the different communities, not just in your own backyard. Thank you so much, Nancy Costaldo, for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks for having me.